Chapter Eighteen of Lady Jane Grey and Her Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Lady Jane Grey and Her Times by Ida Ashworth Taylor. Chapter Eighteen. Fifteen Fifty Three. Turn of the Tide. Reaction in Mary's favor in the Council. Suffolk yields. Mary proclaimed in London. Lady Jane's deposition. She returns to Sion House. Northumberland was gone. The weight of his dominant influence was removed, and many of his colleagues must have breathed more freely. In the tower, Lady Jane, with those of the council left in London, continued to watch and wait the course of events. It must have been recognized that the future was dark and uncertain and whilst the lords and nobles looked about for a way of escape should affairs go ill with the new government, the boy and girl arbitrarily linked together may have been drawn closer by the growing sense of a common danger. Guilford Dudley did not share his father's unpopularity. Young and handsome, he is said to have been endowed with virtues calling forth an unusual amount of pity for his premature end, and Halen declared that of all Dudley's brood he had nothing of his father in him. He was— says Fuller, adding his testimony, a goodly, and, for aught I find to the contrary, a godly gentleman, whose worst fault was that he was the son of an ambitious father. The flash of boyish ambition he had evinced in his determination to be content with nothing less than kingship must have been soon extinguished by the consciousness that life itself was at stake. For quicker and quicker came tidings of fresh triumphs for Mary, each one striking at the hopes of her rival's partisans. News was brought that Mary had been proclaimed queen first in Buckinghamshire, next at Norwich. Her forces were gathering strength, her adherents gaining courage. Again, six vessels placed at Yarmouth to intercept her flight, should she attempt it, were won over to her side, their captains, with men in ordnance, making submission, whereat the Lady Mary, from whose mind nothing had been further than flight, and her company were wonderful joyous. This last blow hit the party acknowledging Jane as queen hard, nor were its effects long in becoming visible. In the tower, each man began to pluck in his horns, and to cast about for a manner of dissevering his private fortunes from a cause manifestly doomed to disaster. Pembroke, who in May had associated himself with Northumberland by marrying his son to Catherine Grey, was one of the foremost in considering the possibility of quitting the tower, so that he might hold consultation with those without but as yet he had not devised a means of accomplishing his purpose. Each day brought its developments within the walls of the fortress, and beyond them. On the Sunday night, not a week after the crown had been fitted on Jane's head, when the Lord Treasurer, then officiously desirous of adding a second for her husband, was leaving the building in order to repair to his own house, the gates were suddenly shut, and the keys carried up to the mistress of the tower. What was the reason? No one knew, but it was whispered that a seal had been found missing. Others said she had feared some pecking in the treasurer. The days were coming when it would be in no one's power to keep the lords of the council at their posts under lock and key. That Sunday morning, it was July 16th, Ridley had preached at Paul's Cross before the mayor, aldermen, and people, pleading Lady Jane's cause with all the eloquence at his command. Let his hearers, he said, contrast her piety and gentleness with the haughtiness and papistry of a rival. 
and he told the story of his visit to Hunsdon, of his attempt to convince Mary of her errors, and of its failure, conjuring all who heard him to maintain the cause of Queen Jane and of the gospel. But his exhortations fell on deaf ears. And still one messenger of ill tidings followed hard upon the heels of another. Cecil, with his natural aptitude for intrigue, was engaging in secret deliberations with members of the council inclined to be favourable to Mary, finding in especial the Lord Treasurer, Winchester, the Earl of Arundel, and Lord Darcy willing listeners. Whereof I did immediately tell Mr. Petrie, the other secretary, for both our comfort. Presently a pretext was invented to cover the escape of the lords from the tower. It was said that Northumberland had sent for auxiliaries, and it was necessary to hold a consultation with the foreign ambassadors as to the employment of mercenaries. The meeting was to take place at Baynard's castle, Arundel observing significantly that he liked not the air of the tower. He and his friends may indeed have reflected that it had proved fatal to many less steeped in treason than they. To Baynard's castle some of the lords accordingly repaired, sending afterwards to summon the rest to join them, with the exception of Suffolk, who remained behind, in apparent ignorance of what was going forward. In the consultation, held on July 19th, the death-blow was dealt to the hopes of those faithful to the Nine Days' Queen. Arundel was the first to declare himself unhesitatingly on Mary's side, and to denounce the Duke, from whom he had so lately parted on terms of devoted friendship. He boasted of his courage in now opposing Northumberland, a man of supreme authority, and, as one who had little or no conscience, fond of blood. It was by no desire of vengeance that Arundel's conduct was prompted, he declared, but by conscience and anxiety for the public welfare. The duke was actuated by desire neither for the good of the kingdom nor by religious zeal, but purely by a desire for power, and he proceeded to hold him up to the reprobation of his colleagues. Pembroke made answer, promising, with his hand on his sword, to make Mary queen. There were indeed few dissentient voices, and, though some of the lords at first maintained that warning should be sent to Northumberland and a general pardon obtained from Mary, their proposals did not meet with favour, and they did not press them. A hundred men had been dispatched on various pretexts, and by degrees to the tower, with orders to make themselves masters of the place, in case Suffolk would not leave it except upon compulsion. But the duke was not a man to lead a forlorn hope. Had Northumberland been at hand, a struggle might have taken place. As it was, not a voice was raised against the decision of the council, and with almost incredible rapidity the face of affairs underwent a change, absolute and complete. Suffolk, as soon as the determination of the lords was made known to him, lost no time in expressing his willingness to concur in it, and to add a signature to the proclamation of Mary, already drawn up. He was, he said, but one man and proclaiming his daughter's rival in person on Tower Hill, he finally struck his colours, going so far, as some affirm, as to share in the demonstration in the new Queen's honour in Cheapside, where the proclamation was read by the Earl of Pembroke amidst a scene of wild enthusiasm, contrasting vividly with the coldness and apathy shown by the populace, when, nine days earlier, they had been asked to accept the Duke of Northumberland's daughter-in-law as their Queen. "'For my time I never saw the like,' says a newsletter, and by the reports of others the like was never seen. The number of caps that were thrown up at the proclamation were not to be told. 
I saw myself money was thrown out at windows for joy. The bonfires were without number, and what with the shouting and crying of the people and ringing of the bells, there could no one hear almost what another said, besides banquetings and singing in the streets for joy. Arundel was there, as well as Pembroke, with Shrewsbury and others, and the day was ended with evensong at St. Paul's. And whilst all this was going on outside, in the gloom of the tower, where the air must have struck chill even on that July day, sat the little victim of statecraft. Cette pauvre reine, wrote Noalis to his master, qui sont perdus de la fève, a twelfth night's queen, in the fortress that had seen her brief exaltation, and was so soon to become to her a prison. As the joy bells echoed through the city, and the shouting of the people penetrated the thick walls, she must have wondered what was the cause of rejoicing. Presently she learned it. That afternoon had been fixed for the christening of a child born to Underhill, nicknamed, on account of his religious zeal, the Hot Gospeller, on duty as a gentleman pensioner at the tower. The baby was highly favoured, since the Duke of Suffolk and the Earl of Pembroke were to be his sponsors by proxy, and Lady Jane had signified her intention of acting as godmother, calling the infant Guilford, after her husband. Lady Throckmorton, wife to Sir Nicholas in attendance on Jane, had been chosen to represent her mistress at the ceremony, and on quitting the tower for that purpose had raided on the Queen and received her usual orders according to royal etiquette. Upon her return, the baptism over, she found all, like a transformation scene at the theatre, changed. The canopy of state had been removed from Lady Jane's apartment, and Lady Jane herself, divested of her sovereignty, was practically a prisoner. During the absence of the lady-in-waiting, Suffolk, his part on Cheapside played, had returned to the tower to set matters there on their new footing. Informing his daughter, as one imagines with the roughness of a man smarting under defeat, that since her cousin had been elected queen by the council, and had been proclaimed, it was time she should do her honour. He removed the insignia of royalty. The rank she had possessed not being her own, she must make a virtue of necessity, and bow to that fortune of which she had been the sport and victim. Rising to the occasion, Jane, as might be expected, made fitting reply. The words now spoken by her father were, she answered, more becoming and praiseworthy than those he had uttered on putting her in possession of the crown, proceeding to moralize the matter after a fashion that can only be attributed to the imaginative faculties of the narrator of the scene. This done, she, more naturally, withdrew into her private apartments with her mother and other ladies, and gave way, in spite of her firmness, to infinite sorrow. A further scene, narrated by the Italian Florio, on the authority of the Duke of Suffolk's chaplain, as her father's learned and pious preacher told me, represents her as confronted with some, at least, of the men who had betrayed her, and as reproaching them bitterly with their duplicity. Without vouching for the accuracy of the speech reported, touches are discernible in it, evidences of a very human wrath, indignation, and scorn, unlikely to have been invented by men whose habit it was to describe the speaker as the living embodiment of meekness and patience, and it may be that the evangelist's account is founded on fact. Therefore, O lords of the council, she is made to say, there is found in men of illustrious blood, and as much esteemed by the world as you, double dealing, deceit, fickleness, and ruin to the innocent. 
Which of you can boast with truth that I besought him to make me a queen? Where are the gifts I promised or gave on this account? Did ye not of your own accord drag me from my literary studies, and, depriving me of liberty, place me in this rank? Alas! double-faced men, how well I see, though late, to what end ye set me in this royal dignity! How will ye escape the infamy following upon such deeds? How were the broken promises, violated oaths, to be coloured and disguised? Who would trust them for the future? But be of good cheer, with the same measure it shall be meted to you again. With this prophecy of retribution to follow she ended. For a good space she was silent, and they departed, full of shame, leaving her well guarded. Her attendants were not long in availing themselves of the permission accorded them to go where they pleased. The service of Lady Jane was, from an honour, become a perilous duty, and they went to their own homes, leaving their nine days mistress, burdened with thought and woe. The following morning she too quitted the tower, returning to Sion House. It was no more than ten days since she had been brought from it in royal state. End of chapter 18